helping to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. This is the Constitution Study on the America Out Loud Network with your host, Paul Engel. America is a very litigious society. This is borne out by looking at the numbers. According to the American Bar Association, there are more than 1.3 million lawyers in the United States, while the Association of American Medical Colleges states that there are approximately 940,000 total active physicians. Now, while that number in itself may not be shocking, you may be surprised to hear that nearly 27% of all the nation's lawyers live in just two states, New York and California. Again, that shouldn't be too surprising if you think about it. I mean, after all, California and New York are two of the most populous states in the Union. In my mind, however, there's something more serious under those numbers. So I cannot tell you how many times someone contacts me and, and assumes the only redress they have for their grievance, the only opportunity they have to get justice, is to file a court case, especially a federal one. People act like judges are, are going to give them the justice that they need, or that they're so corrupt that they don't stand a chance. And because of everything seems to turn into a court case, there is a great demand for attorneys, for lawyers. So today, I want to look at some recent court cases and to see, well, just how well are we doing at getting justice from the judicial branch? Then I want to look at some pending lawsuits to see if justice can even be served. Well, hello there, Everyday Americans. Paul Engel here with the Constitution Study, where we read and study the Constitution. We teach the rising generation to be free. I'm glad you could join me today as we're talking about court cases and, and attorneys and, and really the question of getting justice from the justice system, or I should say the judicial system. But also this idea, you see, if we live by the court, we're going to die by the court. The American people have put uh, great faith and trust in the judicial branch. We even go so far, many of us, as referring to what they do as ruling. Uh, courts don't rule. They opine. They offer decisions. But they do not rule. But yet, you ask most Americans about a court decision, and they'll refer to it as a court ruling. Uh, everyday Americans, media, politicians, attorneys, everybody refers to them as ruling. And what happens when we create a ruling class, we're no longer a republic then, are we? We become an oligarchy with a, a hierarchy of rulers over us in the judicial system. The first one really kind of caught my attention, because as I said, I'm a child of the 60, late 60s and 70s. I was born in, in 63. And um, of course, my entire life, we've had fluoride. There's fluoride in our toothpaste. Many municipal systems put fluoride in the water. And everybody thought this was great for preventing cavities. But you see, there's a, there's a federal lawsuit currently underway that could actually ban fluoride from drinking water. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. The Fluoride Action Network has sued the Environmental Protection Entity, and, and Agency bleh, under what's called the, the Toxic Substances Control Act of 2017. And this case appears to be getting near its conclusion. Now, under this act, uh, citizens can challenge the EPA in court if the agency rejects information uh, petitions related to a toxic substance. But Paul, Florida isn't a toxic substance. Well, that may not be true. 
see, the lawsuit has brought attention to some new research that links fluoride exposure to damaging neurodevelopment effects. Now, opposition to fluoride has been going on for at least 70 years, so it's before I was even born. Uh, but it was always dismissed as kind of fringed, unscientific. But now there's rapidly emerging science on the development of neurotoxicity, especially the loss of IQ from early life exposure to fluoride. And this could have a huge impact on many municipal water systems. In fact, the data uh, research funded by the National Institutes of Health conclude that the risk to children is too great to consider water fluoridation safe. Now, I don't have a lot of details on the, the science, other than there's, there's more and more reports, more and more evidence coming out of this issue, again, especially in small children. And I think this is going to come down to uh, something very common in science, and that is um, quantities in age matter. Right? The, a, a certain amount of a toxic substance is helpful, whereas a greater amount is, well, toxic. I mean, even water. Think about it. Water is necessary for life. We're all told we need to drink a certain amount of water every day. Water is necessary. But if you drink too much water, I don't mean you drown it. I mean you just literally drink too much water. It can become toxic in your system. It, it literally dilutes the, the chemicals necessary uh, for life to the point where life can no longer be sustained. So my guess is what we're seeing is, is two things. One is fluoridation, fluoride as a um, uh, as a as a chemical, is probably safely used based on the the amount per the weight of the person, right? It's it's how much fluoride, and that may be why it's harm. They're finding it harmful to young children because if you have a fluoridation rate that's sufficient for say um, teenagers and adults, it may be way too much for young children, and that may be the issue. Which, which is why they, they keep focusing not on taking fluoride out of toothpaste or, or banning it from doctor's offices, but taking out of the municipal water supply. But coming back to the, to the topic at hand, here you have a, a again, this a movement's been for 70 years trying to get the EPA to um, prevent fluoridation in, in municipal water supplies when the EPA is promoting this. Of course, to me, it keeps coming back, you know, they're, they're looking for the courts to to fix this when, how about the fact that the EPA doesn't legally exist? They have no authority to regulate uh, uh, water supplies and whether or not there's fluoride in the water. Why? Well, it's very simple. You see, nowhere in the Constitution is the United States given the authority to regulate environment, to protect the environment. It's not part of the, you know, the first one is, this is a general welfare clause. That's not part of the general welfare of the union. Right, the United States, capital U, capital S, it's the same proper noun used in the 10th Amendment. If we didn't tell you you can do it, you can't magically come up with it. But for 70 years, they've been trying to do this. And now we have a court maybe possibly saying, you know what, what the EPA is doing is wrong. Now, I know you can't prove a negative, but I wonder what would have happened if instead of having the federal government create these regulations through their own regulatory bodies, if it was left where it belongs, but to the states and, and, and different states based on the, the demands and requirements of their population, tried different solutions. And then we found out which ones work best and which ones not so well because we had a diversity of, of outcomes by depending on the actual federalist system created by the framers rather than the bureaucratic system 
created by Washington, D.C. and um, our employees that we, we send there. Since we're talking about the EPA, how about another one? Uh, here we have an Idaho couple that have been battling with the EPA for years over the right to develop their own property. And this all comes under a, a, a controversial statement known as the, the Waters of the United States Rule. See, when the EPA was illegally created, they were, they were allegedly empowered to regulate the waters of the United States. But you see, they kept changing the meaning of well, what are the waters of the United States? Now, critics have said that uh, these, this rule has led to ridiculous, excessive, overzealous reg regulation of private lands under this quote-unquote waters of the United States rule. So the, the couple, a, a Chantel and Mike Sackett, um, they started building on a new, a new home in Priest Lake, Idaho, uh, when the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers ordered them to stop claiming that their property included wetlands. By the way, they, they said they needed a per the feds they needed a permit to build on their own land, a federal permit to build on land, and threatened to find them thirty thousand dollars a day. Now, how did they determine that this parcel had wetlands? Because according to the Sackets, their their land lacks any surface water that connects to any stream, creek, lake, or other body of water, so it shouldn't be subject to any federal regulation. I contend it shouldn't be subject because the federal regulation doesn't legally exist. Now, the other interesting part of this case is uh, the, the, the Sacketts, through their attorneys, actually asked the Supreme Court to revisit a previous opinion called Rapinos versus United States, which created this kind of weird decision with a, a lot of uncertainty. And, and in the legal world, uncertainty is not good. Now, in a unanimous decision, the, the court found that the Sacketts property did not fall under the, this provision of the EPA, the Clean Water Act, under the Clean Water Act. But only five of them wanted to create a new test to determine when the statute applies. See, and here's where I'm seeing uh, problems. And granted, I feel very happy for the Sacketts because it, it, from what I know of this case, the, the, the EPA really overstepped their bounds. But notice a couple of things. We're dealing with a very mercurial court. It, one court says under our test it would fit. Another court says no, it doesn't. They argue over the test. You have justices making law by redefining words. And we're supposed to be happy with this. What's to prevent the next court to say, no, 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 uh, any puddle that lasts for more than eight hours is considered waters of the United States? Absolutely nothing. So this is what I say, when we have a, a, uh, a litigious society, when we treat the opinion of courts as if they were rulings, we end up with, um, we end up with a ruling class. We end up with a, a, um, an oligarchy, a, a group that uh, simply decides for you what, uh, what the rules will be. And you don't have, your representation doesn't matter because it can be overturned by a group of justices in, in, in black robes. And while we're dealing with the Supreme Court, here's another case. And, and this one, uh, again, I, I think has a reasonable rational outcome. Um, you may have heard of Ger Geraldine Tyler. Uh, she owned a, a, a or I'm sorry, she owed $15,000 on a condo in, uh, the, uh, in the Minneapolis area. Now, Hennepin, Hennepin County, Minnesota, 
she she owed the money. She owed fifteen thousand taxes. She they sold the home. Or, I'm sorry, the condo for forty thousand dollars, and then kept the change. So she owed fifteen. They sold it for forty, and they decided to keep twenty five thousand dollars just for themselves. So this ninety four year old woman sued. I give her gumption, right? Ninety four years old. Granted, I don't know how much of an impact this had on her on her life. If she couldn't pay a fifteen thousand dollar tax debt, I imagine losing an extra twenty five thousand dollars doesn't help. But uh, she had the gumption to go through with this, and uh, the court unanimously found that uh, the county was wrong. Uh, according to Just Chief Justice Roberts, when he wrote in the opinion, he said, "Taxpayers must render under Caesar what is Caesar's, but no more." Uh, he wrote, "The county had the power to sell Tyler's home to recover the unpaid property taxes, but it could not use the toehold of tax debt to confiscate more property than was due." This hopefully would uh, effectively end the home equity theft market that has been rampant and in many places around the country. I mean, there are at least a dozen states in, in the uh, uh, District of Columbia that allow this process to happen. Now, what's interesting is uh, many people talk to this, and I think even the Court of General Opinion may have found this a problem under the Takings Clause. I, I reviewed this case uh, when it was at, uh, I believe it was Oral Arguments. Uh, you can find that at constitutionstudy.com. I will do a deep dive on this also for that, for constitutionstudy.com, and I'll talk about it uh uh, probably more later in the program. You can find it on, on AmericaOutloud.com when I publish it. But what's interesting is um, it seems like uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, and uh, Justice, Justice Gorsuch and Ketanji Brown-Jackson um, added that it violated the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause. So I, I want to get into the details and and give that full work. But it's, okay, this this um, this this elderly lady got the answer she wanted, but it really was dependent on a handful of justices. And and that scares me because there have been plenty of instances, some I've, I've commented on here, some throughout history, of the courts just plain getting it wrong. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm kind of tired of putting my trust in nine high priests in black robes who apparently have a reading comprehension deficit when it comes to the Constitution of the United States that they took an oath to support. Now, I have some other cases I want to take a look at, but uh, I, I need to take a break. Before I go, you know, we're, we're, we're in the summer season now, and, well, this is a good time to read. I can't tell you how many times people have, uh, uh, I've talked to people, oh, I'd love to read the Constitution, but... And there's always a but in there. Well, I've created something to help you. I call it Read the Constitution in 30 Days. I call it that because most people don't believe me that they can read it in 30 minutes. It's a daily devotional for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. It's a 30-day devotional. You read maybe two, two and a half minutes a day. You'll get a you'll get sections of the Declaration of the Constitution, a little a commentary paragraph or so by me. And then at the end of 30 days, you've read the entire Declaration of Independence and Constitution. It's a great way to get started. It's a great way to deal with it in small chunks. Or I've even asked people that they like it because they're dealing generally with a single topic at a time. Now, I'm offering my listeners here at America Out Loud free shipping on any of the books in my bookstore. Just go to constitutionstudy.com shop and use the code OUTLOUD at checkout. 
It'll give you free shipping on any of my paperback books. Sorry, I can't offer it on the t-shirts and other things at this time. But for now, you can get the books with free shipping if you use that code out loud at checkout. And speaking of you, the code out loud, you can use it, by the way, at HealthyCell.com as well. HealthyCell is a leading innovator in supplements designed to work at the cellular level. One that I use, I love it, I use it regularly, it's called Immune Super Boost. It combines over a dozen immune supplements into a single, easy-to-use, travel-ready gel pack. These, these nutrients help boost your immune system, especially for someone like me when I'm traveling and meeting people and I, I need that extra boost. And the fact that it's, eat, that it's in this little tr the gel pack just makes it very convenient to use. I recommend the Immune Super Boost. They've got a lot of great products at HealthyCell.com. So go to HealthyCell.com, check out all of them. Again, Immune Super Boost, any of their products. But I want you to use that code out loud at checkout, and they'll give you 25% off your first order. So please go to HealthyCell.com, put your card together, try any of these great, wonderful products, but make sure you use that code out loud at checkout. It lets them know that you listen to America Out Loud, and as a thank you, you get 25% off your first order. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Welcome back, Everyday Americans. You rejoin the Constitution study. Today, we're talking about living by the court and dying by the court. And I've got an excellent example here out of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
We talked a little bit about, about uh, other cases, including Supreme Court cases, but uh, this one I found very interesting. See, the case involves, uh, was it Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology? Little, repeatedly the top-rated school in the country. And recently, they adopted a so-called racial balancing test um, for the admittance into school. Now, the policy uh, took the this use of standardized tests and kind of, well, threw them away. So instead of doing standardized tests, they're going to replace what they refer to as, as enhanced merit factors. I love some, some of these words. So th these include uh, the, the student's GPA, prob a problem-solving essay, uh, economic disadvantages the student may face, English language learners also listed as uh, an added uh, criteria, and um, they use this to try and have a more, um, how do they put it, racially and economically diverse student body. Now, the, the school was sued by a group of parents who objected to the policy, saying it's, well, it's racially discriminatory and therefore unconstitutional because it, it appears to be aimed at the school's largest population of Asian American students. Now, I, I, I'm, I was really with them up until the point they said, oh, see, it's targeted at Asian Americans. Rather than saying it's racist because it, 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 it includes a student's race as part of the admission criteria, um, they looked at it and saying, well, it's racist because it attacks a specific race. But let's get back to the, to, to the process. So um, the, the, the point being made by the group of parents is not that the, uh, or that the policy has the effect of um, being racially biased. In other words, it treats races differently. Um, and this is based on uh, looking at the, the change in the student body since the policy was enacted. See, since then, the black population of the school has increased uh, to 7%, the Hispanic population to 11% under the policy, while the Asian American student population decreased by 26%. So they say, therefore, it must be racially biased because we get a racially different outcome. Now, listen, I to me, this is, it's not quite nonsense, but it, it, it certainly is questionable, right? The question is, was was it specifically were the the did the school pick the factors they picked uh, GPA problem solving essay economic disadvantages specifically to advance or inhibit a specific race and while racial outcome may be a consideration is a definitive factor now uh, according to the district court that first heard this. Um, they said, no, it's, it's unconstitutional uh, because there's a racial outcome disparity. It changes the racial outcome. Therefore, there's a racial bias. The appeals court said there's nothing racial in the test, in the standard. Therefore, it is constitutional, which means this is going to be appealed to the Supreme Court. And I'm kind of curious to see, A, does the court take it? And if it does, how does it deal with it? Because this gets to an interesting question. What are the standards by which schools should be looking to uh, enroll students? And the question becomes public schools. Remember, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology is a public school. Right? We're not talking about a private school here. 
and to you know, I look at this and say, okay, um, looking at it from a standpoint of um, GPA, that's a merit-based achievement. I see that as 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 fine. A, a problem-solving essay, a little more subjective, but probably okay. Um, economic disadvantaged students. Hmm. See, here's the problem I have: is uh, where is that? How is that weighted? That's why I said there's a lot more here that that I'm not uh, uh, I'm not fully involved in. But this is the type of stuff that we we need to consider. And I come. The reason I brought this up as an example is here's a group of parents. They won at a lower court. They lost at an appeals court. Who knows what's going to happen at the Supreme Court? Um, for this racial discrimination case, um, and my, I'm also not sure if bringing it to a federal ca- uh, court in the first place was the right way to go about doing things. I just don't know enough about the the the, the case as a whole um, to do that. But I want you to see. Imagine you're one of these parents. You won, then you lost, then you're not sure if you're going to win again. It becomes very uh, again, very mercurial. It's it's based on the the whim and the philosophy and, and of the of whatever judge is last to see it, which to me is kind of a hard way to get justice if it's based on the whim of, of one or a handful of individuals. Uh, now, there's another case that was filed that seems um, somewhat interesting. See, there were three Rhode Island teachers that were fired for refusing the COVID jab, and uh, they're suing. Uh, no, they're not suing the school for terminating them. They're suing their union for not representing them uh, during the uh, the termination process. So Brittany DiOrio, uh, Stephanie Hines, and Carrie Thurber, uh, all former teachers at Barrington Public School System, filed this suit against the National Education Association, the Rhode Island NEA, and the NEA of Barrington, alleging that the unions encouraged the school to terminate faculty who did not take the jab and did not advocate for the religious exemptions as required under Title VII and the Rhode Island Fair Employment Practices Act. Now, this suit's just getting started. Uh, I don't have a lot of details on it. But this is what I want you to think. You have, uh, uh, again, teachers suing their union saying, hey, we pay dues for you to represent us, and you didn't. Uh, They claim that the union's actions made the committee feel empowered to go forward with termination because the district would not represent those, uh, uh, would not represent these teachers. Uh, In fact, at the pre-termination hearing on October 28th, 2021, the union lawyer specifically said that the union felt that the committee had the power to adopt a vaccine mandate unilaterally without negotiating and without any religious exemptions. Which has always been, to me, it's an issue with the with un, with public sector unions uh, and, and with any forced unionization, right? If you are in a state where to work at certain jobs, you have to join a union, what happens if the union decides not to represent you or doesn't represent your your beliefs? This becomes the issue. So here we have again three teachers, and they're suing the and and again um, we're we're early days with this, but it's it's something worth thinking about, right? Did the did the unions do their job 
or did the unions be simply become part of the machine that dealt with not just termination of teachers, but keeping schools closed, um, promoting this, the remote learning that has, in many cases, failed so abysmally based on the, the, um, the, the standard tests that we're seeing uh, of students who've been through this. But I also wonder, is the answer to simply sue the unions? I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm saying, is that the sole answer? How about we also disempower the unions and say, listen, if you are not going to represent me, you're not getting any more of my money and the state can't force you to do so. Now, the Barrington school system actually settled back in May with the three teachers. It, it paid them more than $33,000 and it uh, expunged their termination from their record, meaning they were offered their jobs back. So the schools have offered the jobs back, but this is interesting to go against the the union, and uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of curious where this is going to go. Now there's another federal lawsuit, this one out of Maryland, where a group of Christian and Muslim parents are are suing uh, the Montgomery County Board of Education in Montgomery County, Maryland, um, saying that they have the right to pull their kids out of classes out of lessons on gender identity and sexuality. Uh, actually, reading from the lawsuit that says that the lawsuit against Montgomery County Board of Education and its superintendent and board members is about whether parents have the right to opt their children out of classroom instruction regarding family life and human sexuality. Now, again, I find this, it's interesting the way that is worded. Do the parents have the right to opt children out of public school education, specific public school education. See, back in March, the school district claimed the authority to introduce pre-K and elementary school kids to certain books, specifically the Pride Story books, that promote one-sided transgender ideology, encourage gender transitioning, and focus excessively on romantic infatuation with no parental notification or opportunity to opt out. I've told the story before about a young mother I, I met uh, oh, good two decades ago or more now uh, who was very upset that her young daughter, I think she was eight at the time, was introduced to sexually explicit material in the classroom. She went to the principal. She complained when she was asked why she was not given the opportunity to opt out. The principal told her, according to her, that uh, he found that if they offer parents the, ch the chance to opt out, they tend to do so. It's really the question of who is in charge of the education of our children. Is it the parents or is it the government? Because when you look at the Montgomery County Board of Education, you're talking about a government entity. They're regulated by state rules, by illegally by federal rules. These are government schools, not public schools, as they're often called. And that's the question. Who gets to decide? But again, I come to the fundamental question, not whether or not the parent should sue, but should this be the only course of action? See, there's the rub. If this is the only course, if all we're going to do is sue and we're going to let uh, a, a bunch of, of high priests in black robes decide whether or not parents have the right to um, control the education of their children, well, then we're no longer the uh, a, a land of, of law. We're land of men, because some people may say yes, it's very important that parents have this right. Others say no, it's very important that the government, you know, gets to decide what makes a good citizen. 
and we're being ruled by men and women on a bench rather than people we elect to represent us. And since taxes are being collected to pay for these schools, if the answer is that the school gets to decide and not the, the parents and not the law, by the way, because uh, from what I understand, under Maryland law, uh, the, the parents have the right to opt their children out of classroom instruction, quote, regarding family life and human sexuality. If a court is allowed to overturn that, then now we truly have taxation without representation. Because the, that county, uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, the residents there are being taxed for these schools, but they're not getting a say in what the schools teach. That's taxation without representation. If the representation under state law is, is allowed to be overruled by a, a, a high, you know, some high priest in a robe, then, well, you know, again, taxation without representation is where we are once again. So I want you to take a, a few minutes and think about that. Consider the situation where more and more we're, we're just assuming that not only the courts are a venue for a redress of grievance, but they become the sole venue for the redress of grievance. And that's the part that concerns me. Uh, why are we not dealing with, um, like I said, whether it's the EPA saying, hey, you don't legally exist, uh, governor, legislatures, we don't have to follow the EPA because they were not made pursuant to the Constitution. Therefore, that U.S. law is not supreme. And in fact, according to both Alexander Hamilton and several opinions of the court, those laws are void. You know, we also look at the, the parents suing the school over their admissions policy. Um, what have those parents done to be involved in the school board to find another policy? Maybe, maybe they look at the, you know, if they're inside the school board, they may find, you know what, this policy, maybe it's not as bad as we thought. Maybe what are they doing inside to fix the policy other than running to the court saying, save me from my own decisions? Because remember, the, the school board is elected. And if these parents are in that district, well, they had the chance to vote on who would be on the school board. So they had the chance to vote on the people that decided on the admissions policy at the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. Were they involved there as well? And same thing with the, um, the, the Maryland school. Are we looking at just a situation where people say, my only answer is to sue? And we kind of ignore all the rest of the power that the people have to deal with these problems. And that, to me, is the bigger concern. Because when you put all your eggs in that one basket, when you put all your eggs in the hands of an individual or a small group of people that, uh, say, have a history of sometimes getting it right, sometimes getting it wrong, and, and certainly, um, you know, blowing in the wind of, of uh, you know, modern opinion rather than law, are your rights truly protected? Are you truly free? So that's why I said we have to look at more than just going to court and especially heading right to federal court. Now, I have some, uh, not so many cases I want to look at. I want to look at the outcome of some of the decisions that have been made. And uh, I need to take a break before I do, though. I do want to remind you, do like I do. Head to America Out Loud every day to get the latest news and happenings. You see, the Constitution Study is just one of several voices on America Out Loud. It's a great place to go. I get their feed into my news feed, and, and I'm going through their articles every night. 
but do more. See, I take those articles, the ones that really get my attention, and I share them. I share them on social media. I share them with friends and family. I want you to do that as well. Share the stories, the articles, the podcasts, the videos, whatever gets your attention, whatever makes you mad or makes you happy. Share it so that other people know what's going on. See, that is how we go about living as a free people. That's how we exercise our freedom of the press. And that's also how we work to secure the blessings of liberty. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Welcome back, Everyday Americans. You've rejoined the Constitution study, and today we're looking at, well, if you live by the court, you die by the court. And we've looked at several examples of court cases and... Um, both the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I guess you could call it. You could say where we've looked at is the court the only source for readers of our grievance. But I want to close out this program by looking at something different. I want to look at um, how court opinions have influenced society, everyday America at, at this point. I'm going to start with a 2015 opinion from the Supreme Court, the case of Bergefell versus Hodges. Now, what's interesting is, according to reporting, it supposedly legalized gay marriage in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. By the way, this is not true. Right? I know people call me nuts when I say this, but courts do not make law. The court did not make a law with Obergefell. They simply said, listen, in this case, um, you can't discriminate against this couple. That is the extent. Remember, judicial power is vested in uh, the Supreme Court and whatever inferior courts that 
Congress deems to make, that judicial power does not include making law. It, it merely states um, coming to decisions, dealing with controversies. You go back to Webster's 1828 Dictionary. That's the judicial power. Uh, is the power of deciding controversies, whether they be in, in uh, um, lawsuits or whether they be in criminal law. So the idea that Obergefell made uh, or legalized gay marriage in 50 states is a lie. It's a lie that is told often enough that we actually believe it. But focusing on that opinion, Justice Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion, didn't seem to believe that this would go anywhere beyond same-sex marriage. However, just eight years later, the New York Times published an article saying that, pointing out that in Somerville, Massachusetts, has now become a haven for legal polyamory. Polyamory, it's the idea of uh, multiple marriage partners, right? Poly, many, amory, I guess, love, marriage. I guess it's, you know, well, let me take a look. Now, now this suburb, Somerville, Massachusetts, it's kind of a, of a haven for the, we'll say, the more out there progressives. It's outside of, of it's a Boston suburb. And back in 2020, they, um, grant, they, they passed an ordinance, they adopted an ordinance domestic, uh, granting domestic partnership rights to polyamorous relationships. Um, that, by the way, that was followed up this spring by the passage of two more laws extending the rights of non-monogamous residents banning discrimination on the basis of family or relationship structure in any city employment or, or policing. I'm sorry, or, or policing. Um, now, okay, step back for a second. This is the Constitution study. Constitutionally, does the, um, does the city of Somerville, Massachusetts, have the authority to say, we're not going to, we're going to treat non-monogamous relationships uh, the same as monogamous relationships as far as city employment and policing. As long as it's within the powers granted them by the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, absolutely. Right? This is, you know, again, if, if um, you know, live by the court, die by the court. This isn't a court issue. I'm not familiar enough with the with the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to say whether or not there is a limit there. But let's let's assume that I would assume that it is, uh, unless you find something in the Constitution of Massachusetts that says otherwise. But now the the city is considering extending those laws to include housing. Right there, I have a problem. Why? Well, it really depends on whose housing are you talking about. In other words, do you have the right to uh, not sell a home to a polyamorous group? That's different of do you have the right to not rent a home to a polyamorous group? And it all comes down to property rights. See, if you're selling a home, if you're transferring ownership, you kind of, uh, uh, you know, you, you give to them the ownership, they can do what they want. When you're renting, though, you are not giving up your ownership. You are delegating, you're lending to the party the ability to live there. Uh, or to, you know, they pay money for the opportunity to, to do so. Um, so I, I always get into this tricky thing when it comes to housing. But what's interesting is now you have a city in Massachusetts, outside of Boston, where 
the non-monogamous, well, it's no longer unusual. But it really shouldn't be a surprise either, right? Because now you have the court opening up the venue. The court turns around and says, um, you will um, allow a non-standard marriage, a marriage different from the definition of marriage for thousands of years. You'll allow one, once you allow one, you know, the camel's nose under the tent, the slippery slope, whatever you want to call it, you give them that inch, now they're taking the mile. Uh, the, the interesting thing is, in Massachusetts, a state court ordered the legislature to uh, enact same-sex marriage before Obergefell, which I also point out was unconstitutional because the, in order to be a, a to have separation of powers, the courts don't have the authority to order the legislature to do anything. Now, my, my, my point here is not really to argue about Obergefell or the, the different sexual changes that have gone over recently but it's to recognize that when Obergefell was, was de decided back in 2015, and people were warning that this is going to lead to unintended consequences, even though Justice Kennedy said it wouldn't, when we find out that the majority was right, that it has led to more and more unintended consequences. Now, my position has been, if the people of a state wish to recognize a non-traditional marriage as marriage, they have the right to do that through their legislature, not through their courts, and certainly not through federal courts. The idea that um, uh, the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause meant that uh, you had to recognize whatever anybody wanted to call a marriage, uh, it made no sense to the people who drafted the 14th Amendment. It made no sense to most people who could oh, read and study the English language, but that's what's been used to open up all of these different ideas, and it's not going to stop. There's no reason why it should stop until somebody looks at this and says, you realize that Obergefell did not order the, um, did not have the legal authority to order the states to open their marriage definitions up to whatever anybody wanted, that it still was the right of the people of those states to decide what the state would and would not recognize as marriage, and until the states Retain, regain that power, take back that power that was stolen from them, um, this is going to continue. How about another one? There's a 30-year-old there's, there's a act that, again, deals with uh, the federal government usurping the power of the states. Do you know what it's called? It's the National Voter Registration Act, or is it more popularly known as the Motor Voter Act? Now, people kind of ignored the fact that it was unconstitutional, including, by the way, when it was, I believe, challenged in the courts. Because people point out that it's the states that control the elections by default. Article 1, Section 4, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senator and representative shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. So this idea that the federal government can come in and not simply say, this is how you're going to handle uh, elections or when and where and the manner of, of uh, holding elections for House rep and, and senator, but we're going to tell you how you're going to register who is eligible to vote. That was wrong. And it was unconstitutional. 
Now, I'm not saying the logic behind it. Well, well, let me rephrase that. I'm not saying that the goal of making sure there's a fair way for people who are eligible to vote to register to vote is is inherently wrong. Right. Uh, the the alleged reason for doing this um, had some merit. But when it was vetoed by President uh, George H.W. Bush in 92, and then Bill Clinton made it a priority for 93, we end up with Congress now interfering with the states, the, the state's control of their own registration. And, and here's part of the problem. So the idea of, of um, motor voter was that anyone who registers a vehicle or or gets a driver's license can register to vote as part of that process, right? You hit a checkbox, I want to register to vote. Now, the question I have is, well, first of all, um, how do you know that the person is eligible to vote? See, just because you get a driver's license doesn't necessarily mean that you're eligible to vote in that state. There are several states that do not check citizenship before issuing a driver's license, so you'd have non-citizens voting. You can get a driver's license when you may have lost your right to vote as punishment for conviction of a crime. So it, it opened it up and said, by default, you can vote until proven otherwise. And while at a certain level, I can recognize that. The problem is it's led to a big mess in in a lot of our voter rolls. Right? We talked during the elections about the you know dead people on the voter rolls, illegal alien illegal aliens on the voter rolls, um, you know people who have moved but still being on the voter rolls. The idea of we're just going to throw everybody onto the rolls and somebody eventually may clean that list up later. Now, what's interesting is um, one of the things that was included in the Motor Voter Act was uh, a quote-unquote federal right to inspect election list maintenance records. In other words, you can walk into an election office and look at the records relating to how to the maintenance of the rolls. Right? So you can't actually look at the voter rolls. You can look at the maintenance of the rolls. So again, you have Congress uh, passing an illegal act, and yet where are the courts to protect us from it? I mean, we've, if we're depending on the courts to protect us from that, where are they? And again, a lot of people looked at the vote and they looked at it as a great idea. And again, the idea of making it easier for people eligible to vote to register, I don't have an inherent problem with. I have a problem with the federal government meddling in how states go about doing that without any probable cause that a federal regular law, that a federal actual federal law was violated. Now, lastly, I, I want to take a look at something. It's a little bit off topic, but I want you to follow me. You see, the uh, President Biden uh, released a 60-page document where he's basically telling Congress to push social media platforms to be held accountable for quote-unquote hate speech. I have a lot of problems with this, not the least of which is the fact that the federal that the president has zero authority to tell Congress to do anything. He can ask. He can ask them to do, but he has no authority to tell Congress to do something. Much less to tell them to violate the Constitution of the United States. Do so you remember? First Amendment, Congress shall make no law regarding the abridgment of the freedom of speech. One person's hate speech is another person's philosophy. But the fact that the courts have been so deferential to the, the infringement of these rights by government entities leaves us with the idea that 
by the way, the president can order Congress to do something. He can demand that they do it. He can he can not simply ask. He can he can um, tell them to violate the Constitution of the United States. To tell them to coerce legislatively through punishment, private individuals to do private entities to do what Congress cannot do, and that is a bridge a person's freedom of speech. See, for everybody that thinks that the courts are going to save us, they're not saving us from this, are they? Do you know why? Because the people of Congress work for the people of the United States. Every member of Congress, both House and Senate, are employed by the people they represent. And if the people they represent are fine with them becoming the bootlicking slobs of the president, that's what you get. If you if they're okay with um, infringing on the rights of others, either because they have this perverse uh, centralized authoritarianism, or simply because it happens to be you know, they, they're saying this is to prevent to prevent anti-Semitism, therefore we'll we'll okay, we'll be okay with breaking the rules because we like the outcome. The ends justify the means. Well, that's what we get. See, so why are we waiting for? the courts to deal with this. How about the American people going, uh, excuse me, Mr. Biden, the states didn't hire you to violate your oath to the Constitution. Members of the House, senators, we did not hire you to violate the Constitution. And if you do, you're fired. You'll be fired either at the next election or we'll try to find a way to fire you beforehand. Because the Constitution, which was approved by the people of the United States over the centuries, right? Not directly, right? Through our, our representatives. That is an expression of the will of the people. It is the legal expression. It is the supreme law of the land. If the people want to change that, then they need to change the law, not simply get some emotional tirade from somebody in, in, in Congress or from a president to bully people to do what they want. Personally, I find anti-Semitism abhorrent. Then again, I find racism abhorrent. I find uh, a lot of things abhorrent. That doesn't mean I have the right to shut people up because I don't like what they had to say. I find a lot of what Joe Biden has said and and others to be hateful. Doesn't mean I think they should be sh- they should be silenced. It's the authoritarians will continue to grab power. And if you're waiting for the courts to save you, good luck. Because history shows that this third branch of government is a branch of government. And more often than not, they will tend to side with the powers of government than with the Constitution they took an oath to support. See, this idea of letting the courts protect us, rather like when uh, when uh, President uh, W. Bush said, uh, I think this is unconstitutional, the Patriot Act, but I'm going to sign it and let the courts figure it out. That was an abdication. That was a dereliction of duty. The same way the American people, when they say, we are not going to inform our employees in Congress, we're going to let the courts deal with this, is also a dereliction of duty, a responsibility as a citizen in a free country. See, a lot of this mess that we're asking the courts to clean up, clean up exists because we, the people, refuse to take on our responsibilities, to do our duty 
and to rein in, control, and inform our employees in the legislative branch and to make sure that the, the executive branch is fulfilling their oath to support the Constitution and enforce the laws of the United States. Now, I hope you'll also come back and join us here at the Constitution Study every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time on America Out Loud Talk Radio, heard on the iHeartRadio network. If you can't listen then, that's okay. All the episodes go to podcasts generally a day or two after they're heard on talk radio. You can listen on your favorite podcast app, but do me a favor. Subscribe to the show. Leave a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the Constitution Study. Subscriptions are how a lot of the rating agencies rate these shows. And of course, if people are looking and they see a high rating or a good review, they're more likely to listen. You can find all the links at the homepage at AmericaOutloud.com. But please share them with friends, with family, online. Help other people know that there is another voice out there. There is a constitutionally sound argument for so much of what we want to do. And by sharing that information, you don't just spread the Constitution study. You help share the blessings of liberty from sea to shining sea.